as we go into the text tonight, I want to challenge and encourage you to open your heart and your mind and take a submissive approach to the Scripture, all of us, men and women, and we're going to ask, what is the Word of God saying? And we come to this, anytime we come to the Bible, we come in one of two manners. We come viewing the Scripture as authoritative for our lives, or we come as if we're in a posture of authority over the Scripture and that we might take the Bible and use it however we choose to use it. Well, as a church, you know, we're going to approach the Scripture in a position of submission and surrender to the Word of God, asking God how He might speak to us through His Word. And in that, then, God would inform our view of marriage through His Word. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, again, reminding you that as we're going through the book of First Peter, Peter is addressing the church under the Roman Empire and their rule and their control, and he's addressing the church in a, in a way that he's, he's talking to us as exiles. We're, we know that this world is not our home. This is not ultimately what we're for. This is temporary. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respect and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be uh, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I want to start by addressing some cultural references. The, the, there's always in Scripture the general teaching that is for all of us, but then sometimes, especially um, when we're looking at a specific group of people that we're being written to or a, a, like a cultural context, there's some things that help us. And so Peter is certainly writing to people in first century um, in the first century church, and there were some cultural things that we need to understand. In the first century, for instance, um, a wife did not have the freedom to choose her own religion or expression of religion. She was required to worship in accordance with the religion of her husband. So in the first two verses, he's saying there's this gentleness that needs to come in the way that you interact with your husband as a wife. If a wife was gentle in spirit but strong in character, she might lead by example in a way that might win her husband over. So he uses this phrase that he might be one without a word, one over without a word. We should always look for opportunities to preach the gospel within the context of a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. It could be that her actions speak louder than words. So you've got in this context uh, a man who's worshiping Roman deities or, or Greek deities and a wife who has given her her life and her faith over to Jesus. And he's saying there's a way that you can navigate that relationship so that you might win your husband over rather than be forced to worship um, the God that he worships. The biblical explanation of submission, however, is bigger than this one example from this one period in history. So in the context, we've got a spe specific 
application of submission in that this could be a husband who is worshiping Roman deities and a wife is being given instruction on how she might submit to his leadership and still not betray her faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. But then if we back out, there's always a bigger biblical teaching on the order of the marriage. And we're going to get into that. Then in verses 3 through 4, he moves into more the physical appearance. He gives some instruction on the physical appearance of the wife. Um, and so he's addressing makeup and hair and, and jewelry and things like that. It's, it's not, there's no point in this that it, that it says in verses 3 through 4 that adorning yourself in a specific way is sinful. Let's read that again. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I, I think of my grandmother. Y'all, a lot of you have heard me talk about my grandmother. Um, her name was Evelyn but everyone called her Dinky. And then the grandkids called her Mama too because she didn't want to be called Grandma or Granny or anything like that because she said it'd make her feel old. And, and, and so she wanted to be called Mama too. But all of her, her childhood name was Dinky. And so and she had a terrible life, man. She had a really terrible life when she was four her mother dropped over dead, um, and right in front of her, it was just the two of them together, and her mother died. I think it was probably a, an aneurysm. Her mom was in her 20s. And then when she was, when Dinky was 16, her, her dad would be my great-granddad, committed suicide. This was the height of the Great Depression. He lost everything. He went upstairs and shot himself in the head, and she was home, and it was catastrophic for her 16-year-old self. And she had a hard life, but, um, uh, but she's about 4'11". Okay, so she's a sawed-off human, you know, like uh, she's about this tall. And, uh, and she wore on every finger, and there's, a, there's quite a few people here that knew her. She wore on every finger about five or six rings. And I'm talking about gaudy, big, huge, like, and she wore chains and necklaces. She was, she was doing it way before Mr. T was doing it. And she, and she wore big hats and they were poofy and they, she wear those one hats. It kind of looked like a chef's hat or, hat or like a painter's hat. I don't know, like this poofy thing and had a little bitty bill on it. She wore that all the time. And she, uh, a lot of her clothes had uh, like animal prints and she'd go and she would mix it up which I would think is but it, there's probably no real fashion rules when it comes to animal prints you know like I know you're not supposed to do like brown and certain colors but I don't think there's anything against like cheetah print and zebra print and, and so she would roll with that sometimes and she grew up on Hamer Avenue in Waynesville and they set right up there overlooking town and she would get a walk down up and down Main Street and she was awesome and but the thing that I remember about Dinky was her love for the Lord so she had this really strong inner faith that she had that had grown out of a really difficult life I mean when she married my granddad um, she, she, uh, he went off to, to war and the first three years of their marriage, um, she was, she was pregnant right, right when he went off to war, she had that first child, but he didn't meet his daughter till he was, she was about three years old and she's had a hard life. But the thing that I always remember about her is her, the inner strength of her, of her character. So I want to make sure there, there have been people that have misinterpreted this through, through, through the years and whole denominations that have sprung up around certain physical styles or characteristics he doesn't say adorning yourself in a specific way is sinful the idea is that the emphasis should not be on physical beauty the obvious fact is that physical beauty will fade 
not just as a person ages, but even consider the styles of a particular day. If a man is only attracted to a woman because of a particular style and beauty, the question begs to be asked, what will happen when that fades? It's just a physical attraction. Makeup and clothing in the first two centuries, Roman society were a little bit out of control. I don't know if you've seen the Hunger Games, but that's what I kind of picture um, in, in, in the way that people dressed. It was a lot of elaborate hairstyles and makeup and, and gaudy jewelry. One commentator in the 1960s wrote this, the elaboration in hairstyles, makeup, dress, personal jewelry in the first and second centuries is eloquently attested by the literature and art of the period. So the clear and important reality and principle of verse 4 is that inner grace and beauty far surpass cosmetic beauty. So in the life of a godly woman, uh, inner grace and beauty far surpass outward cosmetic beauty. Then he gets into verse 5 and he gives an example of this and he uses Sarah um, Sarah is an example. If you study the story of Abraham and Sarah, what you see is a woman of extremely strong character and personality who submits to a man who is known as much as anyone for both his strengths and his weaknesses. So you see this with a lot of biblical characters. Like, man, I know this person for his strengths, but then you know him for their failures. Sarah was a strong woman with a unique and independent personality. She did not just bow her head and do what she was told. She was, in fact, countercultural in that sense in her own right. There was a true struggle in the marriage to find the balances of God's design for husbands and wives. Both Abraham and Sarah made big mistakes. She didn't blindly submit to her husband, but she also did not try to control him and break God's order for the marriage. So when Peter calls the women of the past holy, He's referring to their relationship with God. What made Sarah an example was ultimately, even in her failures, her submission to and her faithfulness to the Lord. And out of that, it was reflected in her marriage. Their holiness wasn't based on their relationship with the husband. The holiness is based on the relationship of the wife to the Lord. This is critically important. The wife put her hope in God and her strength and beauty of character um, comes through in the obedience to God and his word and in obedience to God and his words, sub Sarah submitted to Abraham out of obedience to God. So Sarah's obedience as an example was to God and his word and that was reflected in her marriage. The submission was to God first and then that was reflected in her marriage. Verse seven says, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The husband is to live with his wife by striving to understand her. Another way to translate this would be according to knowledge. Um, it, it, it's like saying, um, love your wife and live with her according to knowledge, not an academic, analytical, psychological knowledge. This is a personal insight into a person you love and have committed to caring for, even when it means laying down your own desires. The man needs to study how he might care for his wife and recognize the way he might help her grow in her faith and love the Lord with her whole heart. This is this is, uh, in this way, he will strive to know her deeply. A man must recognize his unique giftings and use them to strengthen and serve his wife and his family and his marriage. The man is physically stronger. The man is physically stronger. A man who is serving the Lord will use his position and his headship to strengthen his wife and help her grow in beauty and holiness and strength and grace. Here, 
the equality of the wife is affirmed in that she is referred to as a co-heir. So two thoughts on this. One, an example, think of the ballet, or I, I was thinking about this. Um, I've never seen ballet, but I have seen figure skating. In fact, in the 90s, they had this movie that came out about this figure skater, and she needed to be in the couples thing, and whatever they call the couples, you know, figure skating. And so this guy was a hockey player, and he becomes her skating partner. You might have seen that movie. I don't remember a lot about it, but the idea is in something like the ballet or in figure skating, the role of the man is to display and lift up the strength, the grace, the beauty of the woman. So that even when that performance is finished, the man steps into the shadows and the woman is the one who is celebrated. This is the very nature of that partnership or that dance. And so recognizing that the strength of the husband is to strengthen and grow and, and, and accent and display as he holds up the wife in all of her strength and beauty. The role of the wife is then to submit to the headship and leadership and strength of the husband and so that she might honor the Lord in doing that. And then recognizing that the equality of the wife is affirmed in this text. There's this equality of, of, of um, character and nature and purpose and value. So there's a brief walkthrough of the text. We're done with the text in that. That's uh, in, in 15 minutes we got through the text. Now, what I want to do then is turn our attention for the second half um, to uh, let's drill deeper into a practical and personal understanding of what all of Scripture teaches about husbands and wives. Concerning submission, I want to read you something from the commentary by Juan Sanchez that, we're, that we've been using uh, it's one of the commentaries we're really leaning on for this study. Listen to this. Authority and submission are good because they are rooted in the Trinity. There's only one God, and he exists in three persons. Each person is equally God, yet you have the Son submitting to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, John 15, 26. Authority and submission are good also because they are rooted in creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The man and the woman are equally God's image, but they have different roles in governing the creation and filling it with God's image bearers. Genesis 1:28. God created the man to lead, protect, provide those under his leadership, and he created the woman to come alongside and help the man. In her role, she is to affirm and encourage his leadership. Like God then, the man and the woman share equality in essence, but have different roles of authority and submission. Authority and submission are good because they reflect God's character. Rebellion against authority is evil because it reflects Satan's character. Likewise, he has addressed different aspects of submission and subjection in the previous passage, if you remember back to last week. In that passage, he ultimately points us to the example of Jesus who humbled himself in the ultimate way. So everyone's called to authority and submission lining up in our lives. In fact, a person who doesn't have uh, who has no construct for submission to authority in their lives is a person who's not in a healthy or safe place. Authority and submission are good. Every Christian is called to submit in different arenas and areas of life. So practical considerations and observations concerning the roles of men and women as husbands and wives according to Scripture. Something healthy in a marriage that I think is, is, uh, helps us understand kind of what this looks like in terms of partnership would be like, imagine you've got a marriage where the wife has a background in accounting, the husband has a background in education. I'm just kind of pulling this randomly out of nowhere. Um, she's 
an accountant, he's an educator, in that marriage, then maybe the partnership looks like he takes a little bit more responsibility in the education, overseeing the education of the children. She takes more responsibility in the balancing of the finances. In that sense, they're bringing their mechanical strengths and their educational strengths and their, and their skill set to bear in a way that strengthens the marriage. So we're to do these things because each has a unique way of reflecting the gospel of Jesus. But in the context of biblical marriage, spiritually and emotionally, it's even more deep than just taking our gifts and our strengths and our weaknesses and, and complementing one another. It goes deeper than that because there's a gospel implication. So if we said, well, she's really good at money, he's really good at education, they're going to have a good complementarian relationship. But we have to go deeper than just the mechanical skill set. What is the scripture doing when it's laying out for us the structure of marriage? I want to consider three thoughts in the last part of our time together, and it's this. Number one, I want to consider the purpose of marriage according to Scripture. The purpose of marriage according to Scripture. Number two, how God has called husbands and wives to operate in fulfilling that purpose. So what is the purpose of marriage according to Scripture? How does God call a man and a woman each to take part in fulfilling that purpose? And then number three, how Satan will use the pressures of this world to attack the plan of God for marriage particularly and strategically by attacking men and women in their complementarian roles. So number one, the purpose of marriage according to Scripture. Here's, here's the purpose. Here's the definition for you. The purpose of marriage is to reflect what Jesus is like and how Jesus loves to the world. The purpose of marriage according to Scripture is to reflect what Jesus is like and how Jesus loves. So these are two, two big ideas. Our marriages give us an opportunity to show people what Jesus is like and also to show people how Jesus loves. Ephesians 5 verse 1 in that really well-known passage of Scripture that, that talks about marriage and sort of lays out for us a biblical understanding of marriage at, in the beginning of Ephesians 5, the first verse says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So marriage gives us a platform to imitate God. So biblical marriage is giving us a platform and an opportunity to be imitators of God. This is what many consider to be the most in-depth and clear instruction on marriage in the New Testament. So we are reflecting what Jesus is like and how Jesus is loving the world when we understand our role in marriage. Number two, how has God called husbands and wives to operate in a unique way in order to fulfill the purpose? So what does it look like? How has God called husbands and wives to operate in a way to fulfill this purpose of showing the world how Jesus loves and how Jesus works in marriage? In Ephesians 5, we're told that imitating God as his children is, is our platform for how we can show the love of God to the world. But because we are God's children, we can imitate God. Being leads to doing. Always in Scripture, being leads to doing. If you're a slave of sin, you're going to act out in obedience to sin. When you become a Christian, you're given a new identity. You're a slave to righteousness, then you're going to act out of that identity. So being leads to doing. The world says you do something, then that makes you who you are. You, in other words, you attain your identity by performance. Isn't that what the world says? Like if you do good in academics or you make money or you succeed in your field of, of whatever, then when you like, succeed at that, now you've got an identity. 
Okay? The problem is if you don't succeed at anything, then you become your identity rests on your circumstances or your victimhood. What God said is, because I've declared you righteous, because I've made you my child through adoption and redemption, therefore do in accordance with who you are. Act in obedience according to who you are. So marriage fits into that. Marriage fits into that idea of acting and doing based on who we are. One of the, idea, uh, one of the reasons the idea of submission is misunderstood is because we allow the world to define this for us, which often leads to abuse, manipulation, infighting, and neglect. We don't want the world to define what it means to submit. We want Jesus to define that for us. We don't want the world to define for us what it means to submit. We want Jesus to define for us what it means to submit. Submitting and submission. Let me give you some thoughts and and observations on that. First, it's not blind obedience that we're talking about here. Submission in the way that Scripture calls wives to submit is not a blind of obedience. In Ephesians 6, Paul uses the word obey to describe the relationship between children and parents and how children are to respond to their parents. And this idea of obeying, is, is it, it's a picture of a relationship in which one person is in a position over another person and obedience is required. But in relational structure in the home, we know that children are below or under their parents, and we've all seen homes where that's not the case, and it is disastrous. Whether you've got a four-year-old who's calling the shots or a 14-year-old who's calling the shots, it doesn't work when that's out of order, right? When you take someone who's supposed to be submitting in obedience and obeying their parents and you disrupt that, it disrupts the, the, the whole relationship. Wives are not called to obey from a position being under the husband. Wives are called to submit from a position of equality and strength as equal image bearers to God. This is a position of strength, not weakness. The strongest picture of submission is when someone with equality of strength and value willfully submits to the leadership of an equal. That's what marriage looks like. Therefore, this submission is not something a husband can demand. Husbands can't demand this submission. It's something a wife only can voluntarily give but in accordance with Scripture, must voluntarily give in obedience to the Lord. Jesus is our example and a picture of submission in the way that he submitted to the will of the Father. So think about this. Jesus is equal to the Father, but he submits to the Father. Submission is very powerful in showing a picture of the character of Jesus and the strength of his love. So for the woman, this is a privilege because she is showing a picture of Jesus in the way that she submits to her husband. A woman is called to submit to her husband by God. This is in accordance with Scripture, though it may be in conflict with social and cultural norms. This is how it's been since the beginning. Go back to Genesis 1. Beginning in verse 26, we see that both men and women are image bearers of God, and this is going to ultimately bring about equality of dignity, equality of value, equality of purpose. However, there is a complementarian nature in terms of how men and women are to function in the marriage relationship. The question may still be raised, why is the man the head? Why does the woman submit to the man? Why is it not the other way around? To answer simply, we do not know. We don't know. I don't know. We don't know that any more than we know why God, 
the Son submitted to God the Father in going to the cross. That confuses me more, y'all. As a dad, if you said to me, you can send your son to pay for the sins of other people or you can go yourself, that can, I'm just be like totally honest with you. I would go. So I don't know. There's, there's a mystery to God. There are certain things, there are going to be times in Scripture where we go, why is it that way? And the only thing you can do is go, I don't know. But I know enough and I've seen enough and God's revealed enough of himself to me that I trust him and I definitely trust him more than the alternative of trusting myself or trusting the world. Because if you're not going to trust God and follow him, you either have to put your trust in your own wisdom and sensitivity to the needs of others and that's not going to work out, is it? Or you're going to trust the world. Let the world define it for you? Seriously? You let Eminem define this for us? Marshall Mathers is going to be now like the new authority on healthy marriage, right? I don't think so. Reality TV, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, we want to like set that up as the model for how we pursue relationships? I don't think so. How about hip-hop, the world of hip-hop? Hip-hop culture, great, awesome, yep. The equality of women is there for sure. No, it's not, not at all. Abuse is celebrated. Perversion is, is glorified. Like the world doesn't give us a better alternative, but some reason it convinces people in whole generational scales that God's way is not good, but that the world has a better way. But in every single society in history, it doesn't work when people don't do things God's way. I don't know why God says it this way, but he does. And I know this, I know who I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what he's committed to me against that day. Trust the Lord. And obey his word and do our best to be obedient to God as husbands and wives. Like that's ultimately what we want to do. The question may still be raised. We just don't know the answer. I don't know. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped according to Philippians 2. But he did not consider submitting to the will of the Father to be devaluing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Now, I would say this. There are times when a woman should not submit. Absolutely. The husband is to lead his wife in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. If the husband does not lead toward Jesus, a wife should pursue Jesus. And so if a husband is not leading towards Christ, her pursuit of Jesus is greater than her pursuit of her husband's headship. Additionally, a husband it might be calling a wife to do something sinful. She should reject his leadership in that. In the case of abuse, situation of abuse, a wife should leave. She should call the authorities. Hopefully she should uh, have relationships within a church that she could go to someone in that church, leadership in that church. She should do whatever it takes to protect her well-being. To do so would enable and empower the man to further abuse. So consider the headship of the husband, not just the submission of the wife. The husband is to lead by being a servant leader. He's submitting to the will of God. He's submitting to, so the husband's not just autonomously leading, he's submitting to God and then leading out of a position of submission. Jesus is our example of this in the way he leads and loves his bride, the church. In Ephesians 5, the scripture says, the husband is to love and lead the wife sacrificially in a way that Jesus lays down his life for his bride. The husband is to use his position and his strengths to lift up his wife. Again, think of the, the picture, the image from the ballet. So here we've got wives submitting as a picture of Jesus who submits to the will of the father. 
We've got husbands leading as servant leaders, lifting up their wives so that they might know Jesus better as a picture of Jesus in the gospel, lifting up his church and laying down his life for his bride. Again, we've got to consider the definition the purpose of Christian marriage. The purpose of marriage is to reflect what Jesus is like and how Jesus loves to the world. The wife fulfills and displays the purpose of Christian marriage by displaying what Jesus is like in his strength, and placing herself under the leadership of her husband like Jesus placed himself under the leadership of his father. The husband shows what Jesus is like through his servant leadership. The husband gives of himself to lift the wife up so she might be seen in her beauty and strength and dignity as an image bearer of God. Both husband and wife get to show the world what Jesus is like and how he loves. And last, number three, how do we see marriage under attack in our world? Well, for wives, it's the same way that the enemy attacked in the garden. God had given Eve a clear value and identity. He told her she was created in his image and had a unique way of reflecting who God is. But Satan lied to her and she believed the lie. Satan did this by helping her forget what God had said. Satan attacked the woman by attacking her own perception of her identity. This was continued and has continued right up until modern times. Satan wants to attack marriages by attacking a woman's identity. Any perversion of who God has created her to be is an attack on her identity. The common results of this will be sometimes women will try to control and manipulate men with their physical beauty. And sometimes that works. A lot of times that works. Sometimes a woman will try to control a man by how she speaks to him. She could be critical or complaining or could wear on him with constant nagging. Some women endure years of abuse, the other extreme, convinced that everything is okay. Heard little explaining a, some lyrics to a song to our kids yesterday, to our younger kids, where in the lyrics to this song, abuse is being celebrated by a female artist. You ever notice how if you listen to secular music, I'm not, I'm not ranting on secular music. There's some good secular music that I enjoy that's, that's fun to listen to. Um, and, and enjoyable. But if you, if you pay attention in, in the secular world, whether you're talking about country music or hip-hop music or rock music, like what will happen is the portrayal of women in relationship will be one of two broken extremes. Either she is in a dominant position controlling the relationship or controlling the man or dealing with the man, or she places herself as a victim typically of abuse or cheating. And these, these will be celebrated. And both of those are crude and broken extremes. Sometimes a woman will lose her own identity as the daughter of God and the bride of Christ and will have that identity absorbed into being the wife or mother that God has given her the gift and opportunity of being. For husbands, sometimes men try to control women through verbal abuse. Sometimes men try to control women through emotional abuse or passive aggressiveness. Sometimes men are physically abusive because they are physically capable and much stronger. Sometimes men are passive and refuse to leave, to lead. They leave the heavy lifting of headship to their wife. Satan wants you as a man to be as uninvolved emotionally and spiritually as possible, to be unconnected from your family. He wants you to sit on the sideline while your wives and children just walk through life without spiritual headship. What temptation might a man give into to become passive? A hobby, an obsession, laziness, work and career, an obsession, 
could be a number of things, but the man faces those challenges. In conclusion, a challenge to wives and a challenge to husbands. When a husband is leading like Jesus and a wife is submitting like Jesus, then there is, uh, there is a likeness in the partnership and reflection of the gospel to the world. Marriage then becomes an incredible ministry base of operations. To do this well, both husband and wife need to be full of grace and strength that is supplied by the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is, like when a man, like men, if we will just serve and lead, be men of conviction, obey God's word, if, the only way we'll get this right is if we submit to God's word every day in our lives. Like as, as a single dude, you're preparing for this. And one of the best ways, let me talk to single men for a minute. One of the best ways you can prepare for this is figure out who you're going to submit to because authority and submission are healthy structures for human existence. Like when you take someone who has no authority in their lives, this is why the scripture gives us all an out or, or an outlet in this by saying, as a church, submit to one another. Like we're submitting to one another. This is why we believe in biblical, healthy church membership. But as a single, young single guy, submit to godly authority in your lives and learn how to submit to the Lord so that you might lead well. People who lead well are people who have learned to submit well. And likewise, for, for the ladies in the church, the, the place to fix your eyes is first and foremost on submission to God the Father, submission to the Lord Jesus, so that submission to your husband would fall in line with that. So I want to leave you with one of the oldest illustrations. Think of the triangle illustration. Um, you, this is often used in marriage counseling. The triangle illustration is the idea that you got a triangle and Jesus is here at the point. Have you all heard this and seen this? Okay, well then humor me. All right, so most people have, but some maybe haven't. Jesus is here at the point. You've got a triangle. And at the beginning of the relationship, the man and the woman are both pursuing Jesus, but they're pursuing from a pretty wide distance. But the more they grow into the likeness of Jesus, the more they grow up towards Christ, the closer they grow together. And not only do they grow closer together in relationship, but in like-mindedness so that they begin to think the same way, work together. But man, like, like this is like, you ever see the Harlem Globetrotters? And that dude's tossing that ball and other guys right there. Like there's this, there's this beautiful picture of like, I know what he's thinking. She knows what I'm thinking. We're working together. And there's this partnership that the more we grow into the image of Jesus and into fellowship with Jesus, the more we grow together in the likeness of Christ's image. It's a Trinitarian idea with a Trinitarian reflection that Christian marriages should, be, should not be a constant battlefield or a fight for control. They should be a picture of the unity between Christ and his church within the Trinity. Wives reflecting Jesus in the way they submit to the husband with whom they have equality. And men and husbands reflecting Jesus in the way they serve and lay down their lives to lift up their wives so that they might grow in grace and strength. In this way, Christian marriages reflect to the world much of who God is and what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, pray tonight. Very heavy and difficult topic and passage. Lord, specifically in the relationship of, of 1 Peter to the church. God, I pray that we would learn from it. I pray that for those of us here that are in biblical marriages, that we, we would recognize that those marriages will never be perfect in this life, but they, they do have the, the opportunity for glimpses of the perfection of what relationship with Jesus looks like. I pray that our marriages would reflect the way Jesus loves and the way that Jesus has laid down his life for his bride. 
Help us to, to honor you by honoring each other. God, thank you for your word and thank you that even when, when it comes to controversial, countercultural teaching, we can trust your word. We can surrender and submit to your word. I pray that as husbands, the men of our church that, that are here tonight that have sat under this teaching, that we would lead well as servant leaders. And I pray that as wives, that the ladies of our church that are here tonight would, would understand the teaching of Scripture and biblical submission, and that our marriages would reflect what Jesus looks like. God, so many of us have seen this, especially firsthand in a lot of our lives, growing up and seeing an abuse or a neglect in these areas, I pray that we would do this according to Scripture, knowing that that's the safest place to dwell in a relationship is in the will of God according to Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.